Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 134. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on November 22nd, 2023, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. Sidebar is our term for an episode off the timeline, which I do when I come across something interesting or in recognition of a holiday, such as Thanksgiving. For the last couple of years, we've run an episode called Notes on Thanksgiving, which first ran on Thanksgiving Day in 2021. Last year's was an encore presentation of that episode, plus a new introduction. If you haven't listened to either of those episodes, you might want to go back and listen to the Encore presentation from November 2022 before jumping into this one. This episode's a bit different and might better be titled Thanksgiving, The Dark Side. The good news is that it is still a history podcast and not even remotely about the personally dark side of Thanksgiving, which includes traveling on the worst days of the year, disappointment over emotionally charged ceremonial compromises, pretending to like food you actually don't like very much, or trying to make conversation with relatives who are tedious, annoying, or both. Not that I have any such problems, but I've heard that people do, mostly from reading the New York Times. Those of you who have listened to the Notes on Thanksgiving episode know that I love Thanksgiving, and think of it as the American Passover, an opportunity for us to remember where we came from, for better and for worse. At the same time, Thanksgiving is less historically genuine than many Americans have been led to believe. The Thanksgiving story, as it was long taught in school, was constructed to achieve a purpose, the unification of an increasingly diverse country around a national story, it worked incredibly well. Italians, Irish, Eastern Europeans, and other immigrants who arrived in the late 19th and early 20th century learned a version of our national origin story in a celebration of community that brought the country together when it very much needed it. But that success came at a price. It could and did alienate at least some of our people who were descended from North America's indigenous peoples, including especially tribes of New England. The success of Thanksgiving in binding together an ever more diverse country and the alienation of people who do not celebrate the European settlement of North America is the story of this episode. Those of you who listened to Notes on Thanksgiving know the timeline of its history. Days of Thanksgiving came to our shores by various means, but became habitual in the religiously fertile soil of New England in the 1600s. The New Englanders practiced it regularly, and after the American Revolution, Presidents Washington, Adams, and Madison proclaimed Days of Thanksgiving at various points. All of this happened without the benefit of the narratives of Edward Winslow or William Bradford, neither of which were published until well into the 19th century. As the country grew to the South and West, the presidents fell silent, until Abraham Lincoln revived it in 1863 after the tide of the Civil War shifted in favor of the Union. By then, Thanksgiving had spread widely, especially to states in the North and West, 
but was celebrated at different days and with different customs. Credit for the PR campaign to promote Thanksgiving usually goes to Sarah Josepha Hale, an enormously prolific novelist and essayist who had become editor of the most widely circulated women's magazine in the 1840s. She editorialized frequently in favor of the holiday and wrote letters to presidents as they came and went. Lincoln was the first to pick up on the idea. Finally, within 15 years, the rapidly spreading sport of football would displace church as the important social event of the holiday outside of the home. But then as now, the beating heart of the holiday would be the gathering of families, just as Sarah Hale had foreseen when she saw it as a tribute to the, quote, gratified hospitality, the obliging civility, and unaffected happiness of the American family. Hale herself must have grown up in a nice one. Hale's vision of Thanksgiving as a cozy family moment was at least in part a function of her class. Elizabeth Peck, whose article, The Making of the Domestic Question, The History of Thanksgiving in the United States, was published in the Journal of Social History in the summer of 1999, described a working-class version of old Thanksgiving that sounds more like Halloween in New Orleans in the 70s, at least to me. Quote, An earlier way of celebrating coexisted with the domestic occasion Hale and Lincoln reinvented. As William Dean Howells put it, the poor recognized Thanksgiving as a sort of carnival, a masculine escape from the family, a day of rule-breaking and spontaneous mirth. Thanksgiving had its own set of rowdies akin to those at Christmas. Drunken men and boys, often masked, paraded from house to house and demanded to be treated. Boys misbehaved and men committed physical assaults on Thanksgiving as well as on Christmas. Groups of men, cross-dressing, who called themselves the Fantastics or Fantasticals, masqueraded on Thanksgiving beginning in the 1780s. The name Fantastic was English, and the practice seems to have been derived from English door-to-door masquerading for treats. Subsequently, the Fantastics copied these and other elements of English mumming, such as drunkenness and ridiculing authority. At the end of the Revolutionary War, veterans were dressing up in the rags of the Continental soldiers. Back to me. Working-class Thanksgiving had persisted in this fashion into the late 19th century, and eventually the opinion shapers of the day began to debate its proprietary in the pages of newspapers and magazines. And then the upper class decided that if you can't beat them, you should join them. And they invented football. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, Princeton beat Yale in the first Thanksgiving Day football game in Hoboken, New Jersey, on November 30th, 1873, only a decade after Lincoln's proclamation. It was a huge success. Moved to New York City a few years later, became the annual battle between the Princetons and the Yales, and was every bit as popular as cross-dressed fantastics. Not judging, just going by the numbers. Not surprisingly, all of this fun drew out the fun suckers in force. Back to Elizabeth Peck, quote, 
to ministers and Ethelbrett Warfield, the president of Lafayette College, football on Thanksgiving desecrated a great national feast day. Warfield regarded Thanksgiving as a day to give thanks to God for the blessings of the Christian home and citizenship. He believed that whooping college boys, storming theaters, starting fights at saloons, dance halls, and worse, were taking the first step in a life of temptation and vice. The collegians were also getting themselves arrested, disrupting Broadway performances and throwing beer mugs and glasses at high-stepping showgirls. In 1894, Ivy League college presidents, law and order fun suckers then as now, embarrassed by all of this, shifted the day of the season-ending game to the Saturday before Thanksgiving, moved the location from Manhattan to college grounds, and insisted that students return to campus after the game had finished. Back to me. Also then as now, once elite opinion turned against something, it was doomed. If the fans of Ivy League football, then it must be said, the best football, had to give up their game or at least the crazy tailgating in Manhattan, then the clock was ticking on the Fantastics too. In 1895, the editors of, you're not going to believe this, the New York Times denounced the Fantastics as an intolerable public nuisance. You know where that usually goes. The culture shapers and good government progressives of their eponymous era went to work passing ordinances and applying social pressure. Within 15 years, there were no more Fantastics on Thanksgiving Day. Now, the New York Times and other critics who wanted to take the drunken rowdiness out of Thanksgiving Day did not just think up a new social change project out of the blue. They were hearing about the true meaning of Thanksgiving from their children. Progressive-era educators had latched on to Edward Winslow's account of the first Thanksgiving and were teaching that Thanksgiving was properly celebrated in recognition of a cherished national origin story about the welcoming of newcomers to our shores, the pilgrims being the newcomers and the Wampanoag being the welcomers. But why was this suddenly something that progressive school teachers would do? The answer is that by 1880 or so, Immigration into the United States was accelerating rapidly, and, as importantly, the origin of those people changed considerably. They still were Europeans, but no longer were they predominantly from Great Britain. Many were Catholic, first from Ireland and then from Italy, and then came Eastern Europeans, including many Jews. There was even a short burst of Chinese immigration into the West, mostly imported laborers. The volumes were such, a half a million or more per year into a population roughly one-seventh of our population today, that the character of the country seemed to be changing rapidly. Within a generation, the transformation would be so profound that it would provoke a political reaction against immigration. But that's another story. More immediately, the surge in immigration in the late 19th century generated at least two reactions that affected the teaching of the Thanksgiving legend. Long-standing American families sought to distinguish themselves from the newcomers, 
Some of this was xenophobia, some was garden variety snobbery, and much of it was innocent popular interest in the relatively new field of genealogy. There was a surge in patriotic genealogical societies. The sons and daughters of the American Revolution, the colonial dames of America, and the society of Mayflower descendants were all founded in this period. In 1895, William de Las Love, a member of the Sons of the American Revolution, took it upon himself to publish a history of the celebration of Thanksgiving, the fast and Thanksgiving days of New England. Love positioned Plymouth as the birthplace of the nation and glorified the New England family. Annoying as this was to Virginians, it is manifestly the case that Plymouth is a more pleasing founding moment for English North America, Love's book pointed people to a more virtuous celebration of Thanksgiving. Football remained, but fantastics and rowdy pre- and post-gaming were out, and home and hearth were in, up to a point. Progressives of the original progressive era were, not unlike small-p progressives of today, keen on the idea that a good government should bend its resources toward improving people. Then as now, school teachers tended toward the progressive. They saw an opportunity to revise the Thanksgiving story and deploy it for a national purpose as the foundation of a new civic religion, as some scholars have described it. Let's go back to Elizabeth Peck, quote, School teachers throughout the nation began to teach the story of the pilgrims to their pupils. Textbooks claimed that the Pilgrims believed in the democratic ideal, since they had drawn up the Mayflower Compact, the first democratic constitution in the New World. Many schools had been putting up Christmas trees and decorating them ever since about the 1870s, but had not made teaching about holidays part of the curriculum. Progressive-era educators devised student art projects and contests as part of a social studies education, which emphasized teaching about calendric holidays. The selection of the national, secular, and religious calendar in the form of instruction was an exercise in cultural power, providing children with a dominant set of symbols, the flag, turkeys, pilgrims, Santas, Easter bunnies. Briefly interjecting here, but one could be forgiven for seeing that some of these things are not like others of these things. Back to Peck. Portraying Thanksgiving as a day to be thankful for the blessings of home and community, teachers staged elaborate tableau with the girls dressed in white caps and cuffs made out of paper and boys in round collars and cuffs. They decorated their classrooms with pumpkins, ears of corn, and pictures of pilgrims and turkeys. Teachers told their students that all Americans were immigrants or their descendants, although some had arrived earlier than others. The schools recognized that they had to develop an emotional bond between the immigrant and the nation, a love of country. Immigrant children could be taught American history and learn about the holidays, but the home was where the deepest feelings of patriotism were conveyed. Thus, the home celebration of holidays needed to be encouraged to reinforce the patriotism learned in the school. By holding a feast around a common table, 
An immigrant family could demonstrate its acceptance of American customs and knowledge of American history. Peck then digresses a bit about turkeys being expensive and the class differences that might have left the poor out of the fun before returning to the big point. Quote, Although it is impossible to establish the frequency of the celebration of Thanksgiving among the poor and working class, it's clear that schoolchildren were cultural conduits, bringing home ideas about celebration, national history, and cultural symbols learned at school. Children implored their mothers to buy a turkey and roast it. The immigrant child helped promote cultural change, making a request of his or her mother. Back to me. By sending the children back to their homes with new ideas about the first Thanksgiving and the purpose of the holiday, the educators of the progressive era accomplished several things at once. They put an end to rowdy, drunken partying in public on Thanksgiving. They pandered to the interests of the British-American population, which still dominated our country and its culture. They stressed the importance of welcoming newcomers to our land, and they gave those immigrants from outside the British world a story about their new home around which to rally. That is why, in 1943, Norman Rockwell could publish his famous painting, Freedom from Want, you know, the one with the eager and large family looking on while mom serves a beautiful turkey. In the Saturday Evening Post, by then every American would understand its message. But at least one group of Americans felt left out, the descendants of the people who were in North America before Europeans arrived. Within a mere 25 years of the publication of Rockwell's iconic painting, American Indian activists began to push a critical narrative of the gauzy, rose-colored Thanksgiving story that most Americans had learned in school. On November 20th, 1969, a week before Thanksgiving, Native American activists under the moniker Indians of All Tribes occupied Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay. Per Wikipedia, I'll put a link in the show notes because the longer story is interesting. Quote, IAT claimed that under the Treaty of Fort Laramie between the U.S. and the Lakota tribe, all retired, abandoned, or out-of-use federal land was to be returned to the indigenous peoples who once occupied it. As Alcatraz Penitentiary had been closed on March 21, 1963, and the island had been declared surplus federal property in 1964, a number of red power activists felt that the island qualified for a reclamation by Indians. A week later, on Thanksgiving Day itself, hundreds of supporters made their way to Alcatraz to celebrate the occupation. In December, one of the occupiers, Isani Sue John Trudell, began making daily radio broadcasts from the island. And in January 1970, occupiers began publishing a newsletter. Joseph Morris, a Blackfoot member of the local Longshoremen's Union, rented space on Pier 40 to facilitate the transportation of supplies and people to the island. Back to me. On Alcatraz Island in 1969, those hundreds of protesters celebrated what they called un-Thanksgiving, 
The occupation would last an astonishing 19 months until June 1971 and was in many respects the first high-profile action of the Red Power Movement, which catalyzed the great wave of dramatic demonstrations and confrontations by Indian activists in the 1970s. The Unthanksgiving, many other demonstrations, and a spate of popular books. D. Brown published Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee in 1970 while the occupation of Alcatraz continued, massively shifted American popular understanding of the treatment of North American Indians in our history. Brown didn't mention Thanksgiving. Thanks to Kindle's search function, I was able to confirm that. But the zeitgeist changed remarkably. On Thanksgiving 1970, almost exactly 350 years after the landing of the Mayflower at Plymouth, Patuxet, Indians at Plymouth started a new tradition, which has been observed since the National Day of Mourning, described by German historian Jana Weiss, whose specialty is North American history, as an anti-holiday celebration, an anticlimactic prelude to the traditional procession in Plymouth from Plymouth Rock to the two historical churches, Church of the Pilgrimage and First Parish Church and the Pilgrim Hall. It all began with an early example of cancel culture. These things can backfire. The Massachusetts Department of Commerce withdrew its invitation to Frank James, a local Wampanoag music teacher and president of the Federated Eastern Indian League, an association of eastern tribes, to hold a speech in honor of the 350th anniversary. Here's how Vice describes the origin of it, quote, James had sent copies of his speech to the organizers in advance, and in the speech, he did not forecast a glorious future, but criticized the historic stereotypes associated with American Indians and their contemporary poor living conditions. After weeks of protest, he finally held the speech as a symbolic gesture, not as part of the official celebration, but in front of the statue of Massasoit, the sachem of the Wampanoags, who in 1621 had welcomed the pilgrims standing on Coles Hill overlooking Plymouth Rock. Organized by the United American Indians of New England, a Native American activist organization founded by James for the protest, over 200 American Indians from over 25 tribes and their supporters gathered around the statue and listened to his speech. James recounted the capture and enslavement of American Indians as well as the broken promises regarding land ownership. While to the general public, Thanksgiving is a time for reflection, a celebration of, quote, the beginning for the white man in America. American Indians looked back with a heavy heart. And still, despite the long history of dispossession and of portraying American Indians as savage, illiterate, uncivilized animals, our spirit refuses to die. In a rousing speech, James called on his fellow American Indians to unite, to stand tall and proud in order to work toward a more humane America, a more Indian America, so that American Indians would also be able to celebrate in the concept of a beginning, a new beginning of a new determination for the original American, for the American Indian to regain the position in this country that is rightfully ours. 
back to me. Then, on Thanksgiving Day 1974, James Lee West, a Cheyenne medical student in the University of New Mexico, published an op-ed in the New York Times titled innocuously, A Native American Reflects on Thanksgiving. The title did not, shall we say, capture West's incandescent rage. I'll quote a bit of the piece so you can get the feeling of it. Quote, My people have grown weary of hearing the songs of Thanksgiving. My people have grown weary of looking back at the first winter when the white man came singing songs of praise to a white man's God who had blessed the new experiment in the, quote, bleak wilderness where no man had set foot. My people have grown weary of a celebration that can speak over and over again of a great tradition and a great nation born under God for the good of all mankind and that can turn men's hearts and minds to years of building a great American dream without turning their hearts and minds to the blood and death upon which that dream is built. My people do not grow weary because we do not wish to share in a dream or because we do not wish to gather as families in thanks to God. We only grow weary of a celebration which not only excludes us, but which in fact attempts to emasculate us. Thanksgiving brings back many memories to us also, but memories of gratitude and goodwill are not ours. Our memories are filled with blood and sickness and hate. We remember very well that Massasoit helped to save those first white men by teaching them to survive in the wilderness they feared so much. But we also remember that he could not teach them that their red brothers were more than animals. We remember that two generations later, in King Philip's War, Massasoit's own people fought back at these white men who had no regard for our humanity or civilization. Thanksgiving. You asked for the Indian people to join in Thanksgiving? You asked my people to join hands on their reservations and in their ghettos and sing praises to God for the founding and success of this great American dream? You asked me to share in the celebration of the death of my people. Back to me. The counter-narrative of Thanksgiving would be wildly successful insofar as it persists to the present day and is now embedded in popular culture. John Stewart recently quipped that he celebrated Thanksgiving in an old-fashioned way. I invited everyone in my neighborhood to my house. We had an enormous feast, and then I killed them and took their land. No doubt his O Courant Daily Show audience laughed knowingly. You can even buy a refrigerator magnet on Amazon with the quote. As recently as this week, the Nation magazine asked, should America keep celebrating Thanksgiving? The choices were yes, but we should decolonize it, and no, we should replace it with Truthsgiving. I'll post a link in the show notes. Suffice it to say that both arguments, poorly framed as I think they were, reflect the current fashion among American culture shapers. Fifty years along, the narratives of Frank James... James Lee West, and countless other activists are now such received wisdom on the American political left that the original progressive era version has itself been replaced. 
I do not know the extent to which the teachers of today are adopting the playbook of those original progressive educators to send a new story home with the children, but I suspect that at least some of them are. For my part, I think it's a great gain that many, if not most, Americans of education have come to terms with the history of the indigenous peoples of this continent, as they've been doing now for more than 50 years. At the same time, the key messages of the constructed holiday that is Thanksgiving, the one that was designed, and I use that word advisedly, remain true and important, both as history and as aspirations. It is true that the pilgrims landed at Patuxet as refugees, 15 miles from the nearest Indian village, and were taught to survive in the New World by men working for Massasoit. It does not matter that his motives were, at first, geopolitical rather than sentimental. They may have even become sentimental after Edward Winslow saved his life. It is true that the original pilgrims were, as 17th century colonizers go, much to be admired. It is true that William Bradford, Edward Winslow, and Massasoit kept the peace between their peoples for 50 years, a stretch unmatched by any other Europeans and any other Indian nations encountering them, and, it must also be said, few Indian nations encountering each other. Yes, eventually that peace would collapse in the great violence of King Philip's war, but that would happen only after the original generation of leaders on both sides, men who had the wisdom of peace and acted accordingly, had died. We can celebrate and aspire to the wisdom of those men and also regret the choices of their descendants, who were, after all, entirely different people. I'll close by reading an excerpt from a Thanksgiving essay by Christopher Hitchens, pointed out to me by long-standing listener Effie Bernstein. Note especially his correct take on the food served on the occasion, on which we are aligned, as those of you who heard the original notes know. Sadly, I won't be able to duplicate Hitchens' accent. Quote, Immigrants like me tend to mention Thanksgiving as their favorite holiday. And this is paradoxical, perhaps, since it was tentative and yet ambitious immigrants who haltingly began the tradition. But these were immigrants to the Americas, not to the United States. You can have a decent quarrel about the poor return that Native Americans received for their kindness in leading Puritans to find corn and turkeys in the course of a harsh winter. You may find yourself embroiled, as on Columbus Day, with those who detest the conquistadors or who did not get here by way of Plymouth Rock or Ellis Island. Even Halloween is fraught with undertones of human sacrifice and Protestant ascendancy. But Thanksgiving really comes from the time when the USA had replaced the squabbling confessional colonists. And it's fine. And all American, too. As with so many fine things, it results from the granite jaw and the unhypocritical speech of Abraham Lincoln. It seemed to him, as it must have seemed in his composition of the Gettysburg Address, that there ought to be one day that belonged exclusively to all free citizens of a democratic republic. It need not trouble us 
that he spoke in April and named a regular calendar day at the end of November any more than it need trouble us that he mentioned God but specified no particular religion. No nation can be without a day of its own, and who but a demagogue or a sentimentalist would have appointed a simulacrum of Easter or Passover. The Union had just been preserved from every kind of hazard and fanaticism. Just be grateful. If there were to be any ceremonial or devotional moment at Thanksgiving, and I'm sure that I would wish that there were not, it still might not kill the spirit of the thing if Lincoln's second inaugural were to be read aloud, or at least printed on a few placemats. Any attempt at further grandiosity would fail. To remember the terrible war that saved the Union, or the Winthropian fundamentalist about that city on a hill, would be too strenuous. And there are other days, in any case, in which one may celebrate or commemorate these things. I myself always concentrate on the dry wisdom of Benjamin Franklin, who once proposed that the turkey, instead of the eagle, should be the American national bird. After all, as he noted, the eagle is an incredible and arrogant predator, whereas the turkey is harmless to others, nutritious, thrifty, industrious, and profuse. Pausing only to think of the variable slogans here, where turkeys dare, the turkey is landed, on wings of turkeys, and by a stretch, legal turkeys, I marvel to think that a nation so potentially strong could have had a founding father who was so irreverent, I also wish that I liked turkey, but there is always stuffing, cranberry sauce, and gravy to be eked out by pumpkin pie, which I also wish I could pretend to relish. Indeed, it is the sheer modesty of the occasion that partly recommends it. Everybody knows what's coming. Nobody acts as if caviar and venison are about to be served, rammed home by a fine Madeira. The whole point is that one forces down at an odd hour of the afternoon the sort of food that even the least discriminating diner in a restaurant would never order by choice. Perhaps false modesty is better than no modesty at all. Never mind all that. I'm quite sure, indeed I know, that many a Thanksgiving table is set with vegetarian delights for all the family. And never mind if you think that Norman Rockwell is a great cornball as well as a considerable painter. Many people all over the world, including many members of my own great profession of journalism, almost make their livings by describing the United States as a predatory and taloned bird swooping down on the humble dinners of others. And of course, no country would really wish to represent itself on its own coinage and emblems as a feathered, flapping, gobbling, and flightless product of evolution. Still in all, I have become one of those to whom Thanksgiving is a festival to be welcomed and not dreaded. I once grabbed a plate of what was quite possibly turkey, but which certainly involved processed cranberry and pumpkin. In a U.S. Army position in the desert, on the frontier of Iraq. It was the worst meal, by far the worst meal, I have ever eaten. But in all directions, from the chow hall, I could see Americans of every conceivable stripe and confession cheerfully asserting their connection in awful heat 
with a fall of long ago. And this in a holiday that in no way could divide them. May this always be so. And may one give some modest thanks for it. That's it then. I hope this episode and the original notes have given you tinder to kindle the fire of thoughtful conversation around your own Thanksgiving table. Thanksgiving and the traditions around it will continue, even if its meaning is revised. May it always be revised to cause us to reflect on what it means to be an American. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple. We're at 398. Get us over 400. And follow me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.